0: Americans scream at a chance to elect a god to the office of the presidency. But the god they chose will surprise you. We also approach the heavy subjects with the LP's own Spike Cohen. Let's tackle it. I'm Boston, and this is the Monday, July 13th edition of Boston Makes the News.
1: 100% Truth Balanced reporting. No apologies. This is BMN, America's greatest newsroom.
0: This week's show spotlights Bullshito's No Real Libertarian podcast. More on this amazing show later. Our sponsor this week and every week are my gorgeous and or massively virile contributors. I've been told that major cities are closing bars back down again due to COVID. But you and I know the real reason. What man thinks they have a chance at finding romance in a bar when you walk in? Your massive shoulders and a jaw so square it could cut diamond. It scares off all of the normal male clientele, as they don't see the point in attempting to compete with your rugged good looks, razor wit, and confident swagger. Their only opposing force in nature, the BMN lady contributors command attention from across the room through the rhythmic pulse of the local DJ's latest project. Known for being utterly irresistible, major riots have broken out for their honor and their favor. The meeting of my contributors in any public house has been documented as electric. The static in the room has been known to cause irreparable harm to floor lighting, circuitry, bar goalers, and staff, leading many to semi-permanently close their doors out of an abundance of caution. Thank you all again for donating and sustaining at www.paypal.me forward slash Boston Makes the News, where every kind cent of your donation will be put to the most excellent of uses. Without your amazingly generous patronage, this show wouldn't exist. Thank you all very much. It has come to the attention of this reporter that there is a new contender in the 2020 presidential race. Yes, you heard that correctly, folks. Self-proclaimed god Kanye West has established intent to run for the office of the presidency under his own party, the Birthday Party. When asked about his party affiliation, Yeezy responded with, If I win, it will be like everyone's birthday. We reached out to the L.A. County Fire Marshal for comment regarding the safety of burning that many birthday candles all at once, but they have yet to respond. The party platform seems to include a management and cabinet model matching that of Wakanda. I imagine this means extreme border defenses and hoarding tech that the rest of the world wants in the world's biggest recorded game of Keepaway ever recorded. Unavailable for comment was the Guinness Commission on World Records. They are probably too busy with the latest hot dog eating competition to be worried about another narcissistic megalomaniac who thirsts for power. The campaign also seems to be declaring vaccines the mark of the beast. Why not just openly declare polio your vice presidential running mate then? This reporter thinks that would leave the campaign without a leg to stand on. Nothing cripples a campaign faster than polio. West has stressed the importance of keeping Elon Musk as an advisor. While I applaud the ambition, vision, and the drive of that choice, can the United States of Wakanda really support subsidies of that magnitude to the lithium, solar, and electric automobile industries? Lord knows we don't want to pay a dime more for corn and soybeans, or we would have cut that farm bill decades ago. When asked about foreign policy, Wes said, I haven't developed it yet. I'm focused on protecting America first with our great military. Let's focus on ourselves first. Wait, wait. I'm getting a correction. My producers are telling me that this was actually Trump from the 2016 campaign. We apologize. West has claimed in previous interviews that his presidency would be a mixture of the Trump campaign and Sanders principles. I imagine that would be like using superior firepower to tell citizens they can't have guns, or opening a uh, vegan restaurant that only serves real pork bacon. How that dissonance resolves will determine the fate of this great nation if West were to find success in his efforts. Here at BMN, we volunteered to prepare, write, and run the first campaign radio ad for West's 2020 bid. You heard it here first. Paying to incentivize people to stay home and not work? Six trillion dollars. Using valuable congressional funds to advance her political goals, $250 billion. Hiring another reality star to the highest office in the land because we hate the last reality star we
1: hired? Priceless. Yeezy 2020.
2: We got to both sign that contract, Mark Parker. I'm going to put Mark Parker all on that Summer Jam screen. And by the way, Mark Parker, yes, I will still accept an investment in Donda. I got some more ideas that don't involve shoes. But if you guys are investing in the arts, y'all want to invest in the school in Brazil, y'all want to go to Africa, I'm standing up and I'm telling you, I am Warhol. I am the number one most impactful artist of our generation. I am Shakespeare in the flesh. Walt Disney, Nike, Google, Now, who's going to be the Medici family and stand up and let me create more?
0: Wow, that sounded better when I wrote it. Well, on to the next news. Last night at a rally in Schenectady, the president momentarily read a protester's sign instead of his teleprompter. The White House has issued a statement that the reading was intentionally done as a form of satire. We will let you decide. This is clip 19.
1: This great nation, in all of its greatness, has done so many huge and great things. Things with our great military. And Trump is a big steaming pile of baby poop coated in cheap spray tan. Okay! Okay! Who thought that was funny? Oh, it's a, it's a I read a sign? F***.
0: Yeah. If that was satire, then I'm Walter Cronkite. What I'm about to say is not a paid or even agreed upon sponsorship, and I do not have their express permission to play a track, so it's up to you to go and listen for yourself. But I want to take a moment to tell you all about this amazing new album from The Midnight called Monsters. It came out on July 10th, and I've basically been listening to it nonstop since then. Crashing waves of synth-driven emotion slam onto the shores of modern aesthetic. The group describes a concept that drives their style. They say there's a Japanese term, Mono no Aware, basically meaning the sad beauty of seeing time pass, the aching awareness of impermanence. These are the days that we will return to one day in the future, only in memories. It plays on feelings of, like, urban and suburban nostalgia, emotions surrounding things and moments you loved and will never have again, and boy oh boy is it good. From their musical style to their artwork and vibe, The Midnight are a tour de force in synth-heavy dance and groove. Monsters is available now through online retail and streaming. I was not paid, nor did I expressly obtain permission to run this segment, but I really love their work and wanted to share it with you. Alright, back to the news. In an expose of Leslie Kern's new book, Feminist City, The Guardian outlines a major issue plaguing urban environments around the world. Cities are literally made of giant concrete dicks, rebar steel veins, and glass ceilings. Creating a feeling of anti-feminine oppression, joining us now is the owner of Brick by Dick Architectural, Paul Perry Richards. Hello, Mr. Richards. Can you tell us what significance there is to this book? Please, call
1: me, PP. Everybody does. Yeah, I'm not sure that's a good... Well, sure it is. Well, this book is highly significant. Almost every architect is obsessed with penises. It's why we found this calling. Ever since I was a boy, I was obsessed. I used to go to the principal's office at least once a week because someone caught me drawing them in my notebooks. The entire industry is centred around the employment and proper saturation of phallic elements within our designs.
0: Is there any reason to believe that this is due to anti-feminist sentiments among those in the industry?
1: Certainly not, I should say. Banish your fault, sir. Only a wholesome love for penises amongst this brotherhood of architects. This goes back countless generations from early obelisks and pyramids to modern structures, skyscrapers, mega hotels and monuments. While I surely cannot speak for the unanimity of the group, I'm more than confident that this is not a leading design intent to marginalize or preclude feminine equity from our society.
0: <laughs> well, you heard it here first America. The Guardian Miss Kern's book couldn't be more wrong. Architects just like dicks. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we need to go to commercial. Spike Cohen joins us next. Today's episode is brought to you in part by the No Real Libertarian podcast, featuring hilarious banter with some of the most interesting people in the community today. No Real Libertarian is a unique blend of history, current events knowledge, subject matter dives, and pithy commentary led by the coolest Dutchman I know. You can find him at at Bushido Paul on Twitter. Take a listen to No Real Libertarian on Spotify and Anchor FM today. July, one unlikely duo rose from relative unlikelihood into the candidates for the most powerful individual seats in the American political system. From humble beginnings to a serious contender for the responsibility to preside over the Senate and protect the continuation of government, today's guest fills some of the greatest shoes ever worn. Revered men like Aaron Burr, who intentionally shot a founding father and fled to the South to allegedly plot an attack on the then Spanish colony of Mexico after being acquitted of murder charges. Like Dick Cheney, the bare knuckled architect or shadowy puppet master who questionably shot a hunting partner in the face. Like Eldridge Jerry, the veritable father of the concept of gerrymandering. Like Dan, the potato with an E quail. Like John Tyler whose actions in succession to the position of the presidency established and maintained that the vice president does indeed fill the role of the presidency in actuality rather than becoming a figurehead for cabinet, and said bare-knuckled architects. Like Thomas Jefferson, who set the standard for mastery of tact and impartiality in presiding over the Senate. A brilliant podcaster, satirist, and advocate, this is the next vice president of the United States. Mr. Jeremy Spike Cohen. How are you?
2: I'm doing great, Sean. And I'm really happy that two of the people you compared me to are possibly best known for shooting someone in the face. Um, I think that's a good start off uh to, to a good lead off to introducing me. I'm doing great. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing well. We 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 like to have fun around here. So. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so uh it's it's interesting to be it and maybe even a little intimidating, perhaps, to be sitting across the table virtually here uh from someone who is also a podcaster, so at the same time as I'm asking questions, you're thinking, you know, you're thinking in ways that maybe podcasters or people who do interviews more often might be thinking. So I almost feel like you might be one step ahead of me.
2: <laughs> don't second guess yourself; just go with it. I, I, I uh, if I wish I had known that that was an issue, I would have told you to watch my first couple episodes, and you'll say, "Oh, thank God, I'm already way better than that guy."
0: Maybe don't listen to my first episode, <laughs> or, or or do you know it could be fun. Uh, the commercial is good. Um, so what drove you into the world of podcasting? You know, for me, it was a, a desire to be productive with my beliefs, values, my physical right. voice and some skills. But I didn't really have much of a like a like a, 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 a line I, I had sp- spent months trying to decide what I was going to do. So what
2: got you into it? So interesting thing. It, it's actually part of my whole arc as to what brought me into libertarianism. Um, I start so just for those who don't know much about me, I started a web design company in my teens back in 1999. And I grew it into a fairly successful business, uh, pretty successful. Uh, and in uh, 2016, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And that sort of Completely changed my thinking on what I wanted to do with my life. Up until then, I thought I'm going to grow this company into a billion dollar business, and I'm going to sell it, and I'm going to you know retire in my I don't know 50s, something like that, and live the rest of my life you know as a incredibly wealthy man. Um, and when that happened, and you know we, we had some very frank discussions about what the future could look like, that changed a lot for me. I thought mm, I don't really. Care about any of the things that I thought I cared about anymore? Uh, you know, it, it, when I walked in here, I, I don't, I don't really care about those things anymore. And so, uh, I it kind of jolted me and made me reconsider what I wanted to do with my life. And so, three years ago, I sold my company and decided to focus my life on my real passion. And I, and I had to spend some time on that. I spent the better part of six months really exploring what is it you want to do. Um, you know, it, you know the the old question that uh the Um, you know, the guidance counselor asks you uh, in school, what, you know, if money didn't mean anything, if money wasn't an object, you didn't need to make any money, what would you want to do? And the answer to that was to spread the message of liberty uh, to a public that often hasn't heard of such a thing. You know, I looked, I've been looking for many years at how uh, the public responds to things and how more importantly, how government and media craft the narrative behind everything that happens. And I realized that, We as libertarians are never going to win anything, win in a major way at the political level, until we've changed things at the cultural level. Until we've, you know, injected our ideas into the greater body politic and changed the conversation away from, you know, ever growing. Right now, the, the the entire conversation largely consists of groups of people arguing over how much bigger government should be, how many more. Uh, how much more it should cost, how much more it should be involved in our day-to-day lives, how much less control we should have over our own lives. And I want to move that to... People asking how much more control they should have, how government created these problems, how whether government should even be involved in the given subject we're talking about. And if so, how little it should be. Um, And so that was what I wanted to do was to to affect that conversation. And so that resulted in my becoming the host of My Fellow Americans, the co-host of the Muddy Waters of Freedom and the co-owner of Muddy Waters Media. And we have uh, tens of thousands of followers across social media. We have a reach that has at times measured in the millions some months. Um, And our goal has been to use entertainment as a way to reach people with a distinctly libertarian message, but in a way that is engaging and entertaining and dynamic and d- demonstrates a level of empathy from us that we are listening to people and want to share our solutions. Um, and so that and that the logical conclusion of that was to uh, was to you know, that if we were really going to inject our ideas, we had to campaign on them. And so that resulted in my deciding to run for the vice presidential nomination. But that that's sort of what got me into the world of, of having, you know, a podcast and live shows and all the stuff that we do uh, was to it was really just a re um, recalibration of my life that this was my focus now. And, and this is my full time. This is what I do full time is talk about liberty. Um, That is what I, and you know, even before I started the campaign for the past, uh, the better part of three years now, my entire life has been spreading the message or my entire career has been spreading the message of liberty.
0: I've, you know, that that makes a lot of sense. I really resonate with that because, you know, sometimes... I'd, I'd like to think that, you know, as I've grown in my ability to understand and comprehend and critically look at things that I see more and more of more and more of governmental structure is kind of a Rube Goldberg machine. You know, you're, you're trying to, you're trying to pop a balloon. Well, there's, you can, you can use a pin or you can use a giant machine that gets lots of YouTube likes and shares and follows and retweets, whatever. I don't do a lot of social media, as you can probably tell. Um, the The main premise of it is, right. uh, you know, you could you have this really inefficient machine to pop a balloon, or you could hand hand someone who should traditionally have that responsibility, usually an individual, the pin, and it, it right. makes a lot more sense that way. Um, I I definitely agree with you. And I like to see that people are treating, you know, like even back when uh, I was watching the debates with with Kokesh, who, who, you know, scares me on a very existential level. I love the guy. I'd have a beer with him. But my goodness, that's scary. Uh, he, uh, you know, he, he mentioned the first move is to set, essentially set lines that cannot be crossed, set, you know, to roll back, scale back and truly... Define the the scope of the executive in such a way that people can uh, people can appreciate the position and know that it's limited. Like the rhetoric coming out of coming out of news outlets is not uh, not mentioning the specific vehicles used and what is actually done. It's just you know X does this, you know Trump does this, Pelosi does this, and it just doesn't make it doesn't make physical sense. It's hard to follow, and when people get you know, people get left that way, it gets, it gets hard to see. So I'm happy to see that people are interested in creating something that's, uh, intuitive and, and controlled. So when, you know, to, to kind of, I guess uh, to brush on some policy stuff, cause no, you're going to want to, you're going to want to talk policy here. And, and I could walk down on policy forever. I, I'm considering, I'm considering someday writing a book <laughs> on incentivization, and, and how, like you, you yourself talked about the incentives of individuals and, and of, of government institutions, they want to keep their seats. So so individuals acting. Oh, like, yeah. yeah. You, you say you're going to be put in this position to carry the, carry the speech of the people and the will of the people to, to government, right? To have that reflected back as representation. But once you're there, your incentive isn't to do that anymore. Right your incentive is to maintain your quality of life just like any other american and the way you do that
2: if you have a job is to keep your job just like every american so seeing and not just to, and not just to keep your job i'm sorry to interrupt you not just to keep your job but once you're there and the cronies are showing up and they want to make your life your quality of life exponentially better than it than it could be just as a legislator now, all of a sudden, you're signing a bunch of stuff that you might have not have signed and and they do their best to convince you it's the best way forward. And over time, they don't even have to do that anymore because you're just enjoying the lifestyle that's been set forth for you by the cronies. They've made it so that you don't have to worry about getting reelected because they they've, you know, fund the super PACs to make sure that you're the only one that's, you know, everyone else gets drowned out in your in your local district or in your state uh you you know are are you you've they they set up lobbying firms to to push to the public their ideas so that you don't even have to do it yourself you just show up you sign stuff you give a flowery speech and you go back to your mansion and go hang out on your yacht and go fly around the world and give speeches to people and that's you know you you don't have to focus on actually legislating for anyone's good much less rolling back the bad ideas that are already in place you just show up and let the cronies do all the work for you and that, and that's the problem is that by centralizing all of that authority, by creating this big government monster that the Republicans and Democrats have created, whether it was for good purposes or bad, what we end up having is a situation where everything is so heavily centralized that cronies and billionaires and and, and megacorps realize that they don't have to provide value to the market on an individual and organizational level to be able to, to become wealthy. All they have to do is to provide value to a relative handful of politicians at the federal and state level and in other countries as well. That's all they have to do is convince us that this is a good idea. And of course, all they have to do to convince us of that is to make our lives better. And so it's it's really just a perverse, it is an incentive. It's a perverse incentive to you know for for politicians to just allow cronies to run everything and that is a direct function of the centralization of power and also of the fact that they can use the federal reserve to print out endless trillions of dollars it would be a lot harder if they had to go to the american public and say listen We really need to spend, you know, a trillion dollars on these wars and we need to spend a trillion dollars continuing to lock people up for victimless commerce like, you know, drugs and and, and sex work. Um, You know, we really need to do that. And so we need to raise your taxes to be able to do that. Most voters would say, yeah, no, no, thanks. Uh, Let's not do that. Let's just not do that instead. Yeah. But if I can print out endless reams of Federal Reserve notes, I don't have to ask your permission. I don't have to get your vote and 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 what a what a what a an absolutely um perfidious and disingenuous way of taxing someone because now i've basically written a loan to myself and made you pay it with interest and by printing out all that money i've reduced the value of of your federal reserve notes by adding inflating the money supply without adding any any value to it so you know what a terrible way to do things so it's 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 it is it incentivizes people to to rob from everyone else to the benefit of a handful of very well-healed, politically connected, powerful people, at the expense of literally everyone else. My my uh,
0: my uh, my fiance would would quote me every once in a while back when I was first starting to understand what I meant when I was working in the you know libertarian policy field. You know, kind of trying to understand that, and and you know, she she kind of treated it as a very like, "F you, I got mine" kind of thing. And and I learned right partway through that that you know it can seem that way if we're not careful in the way that we address these issues that you go if, if individuals have what they need then what does everyone else matter but there's some there's some kind of additional movement there and so as as people people in times like this are becoming increasingly upset and resorting to more and more desperate action to try and get some kind of movement in the direction they need things to go we have you know there's stuff happening behind the scenes, you know? And I, and so I talked to, I talk to that, I speak to that because I, I struggle with emotional impact, uh, in ways that can bother some people. But when it comes to policy, I'd like to think that I've, I've got a decent enough head on my shoulders for it. So right. when I saw, you know, when I saw that, uh, Amash was running, uh, I said, su- I said, wait, I've watched what four or five debates now. What's this guy mm-hmm. doing? He's coming in late, thinking it isn't right. gonna, you know, thinking he's not gonna have to do the debates and play the game like everyone else. But I was still hopeful, and then you guys came in and absolutely surprised—I, I, I mean, me and people I know—out of the blue, and I was happy because I saw, I saw a lot of capital L, you know, all or nothing type folks with, with strong beliefs and a good heart. But I, I knew that we needed someone more interested in in gently adjusting, you know, and working with culture and and being a directionalist and and what we got is is uh you know someone who is an absolute you know an an excellent communicator. Both of you are excellent communicators. Uh and then and then someone who knows how to use virality and humor and satire to to drive those points home. Uh and so when when I saw when I saw that uh that Amash had put together this this uh, qualified immunity rollback bill that if you look mm-hmm. at the co-signers, I mean, it's everyone. <laughs> it's like people from both sides, like people, when I hear them talk, I'm like, oh man, not so good. But now they're working together on this concept. Uh, I think a lot of people have heard those words qualified and immunity put next to each other in relation to this, but they don't truly understand what we're getting after here. What's the point of rolling this back? And more even oh, more gosh, particularly, yeah. why it took the spearhead of a libertarian to get that ball rolling, so can can you kind of give us oh. a bit of a little bit a little bit of a primer on this movement here?
2: Yeah, absolutely. so i let me answer the last part of that question first. It took a libertarian because qualified immunity is the <laughs> end logical conclusion of the statism of the Democrats and Republicans uh, and so it is taking pressure from the public uh, and, but but remember that first move was a libertarian and that bill sat there for a few days without any co-sponsors and it took pressure from the public to say wait a second there's a bill for ending qualified immunity yeah let's do that and it, it, it took that to finally get some movement on it and it is now a tripartisan bill um and so uh and and so really just an, at this point a nonpartisan bill it is that a, it a is cool a word bill that is growing. tripartisan yeah it's cool tripartisan yeah the it's coolest a thing, thing now. i've heard in politics it in is my now life. a thing tripartisan is now a They're thing Fi- finally we can you know we got our first libertarian congressman uh libertarian party congressman and now we've got tripartisan bills and everything yeah no it's everything dude, what a time to be alive that's the that's the the positive side and then of course we've got the pandemic and the, the murder hornets and uh Yellowstone might explode and all that stuff but but we got tripartisan if nothing else we got tripartisan in our in our lifetime absolutely um so qualified immunity is a terrible. i actually did a, a video Fairly viral video explaining what this is, but qualified immunity is a terrible legal doctrine that basically says that police officers can do whatever they want and not have to worry about getting sued or being held responsible if they determine if they determine those specific officers determine that they what they did could be reasonably considered to be within the scope of what they had to do, uh, uh, you know, in order to be able to do their job in that moment. Imagine if you could show up in court and say, well, your honor, I realize I was charged with whatever I was charged with, but I thought what I did was perfectly reasonable. And the judge said, okay, yeah, this is thrown out what you you thought it was reasonable. That's qualified immunity. So it used to be that if the police uh, abused you or violated your civil rights, your your constitutional rights, you could sue them and you could sue the department and you know, a, a court, a jury of your peers and a court would decide if you if your your case had merit or not. In the 1960s, to basically to protect police departments that were brutalizing civil rights protesters, the Supreme Court uh, introduced something called qualified immunity, which was, again, the idea that if if the officers decided that um, that, you know, what they were doing was reasonable and that it was within this, it was, you know, during the scope of their duties and not just police officers, politicians. Um, that's why you can't sue politicians for the bad outcomes of their, of their legislation. Cause they can say, well, I, I thought it was a good idea. Um, so uh, politicians, uh, any kind of government official, including police officers, um, that if they decide that it's reason it was reasonable, uh, it, could, it was reasonable and, and fit within their duties, then unless it's very, very egregious, like out, basically outright murder. Uh, uh, or or, or outright some major, major types of abuses, uh, the courts will decide that they can't be held responsible for it. And then in 2001, it got even worse. They decided that even if it was determined that what you did could not be considered reasonable, unless a precedent of that exact same type of abuse had already been set in that exact same jurisdiction You still couldn't be held responsible. Your precedent was now sent, but you personally could not be held responsible and your agency could not be held responsible. Here's two examples of how that played out Uh, in Tennessee. Two Tennessee police officers uh, had a suspect uh, that had already surrendered and was already detained, and they allowed their canine officer to viciously bite him multiple times. He ended up in the hospital. That suit was thrown out because even though there was an exact same type of case in that exact same jurisdiction where an officer was allowed to bite a, a detainee that was held, in the first case, the detainee was lying on his side. And in, the, in, this, in this case in Tennessee, the detainee was sitting up. That one difference allowed those officers not to be held responsible. In another case, uh, we had, and I forget where it was, I think it was a federal corrections, but it might've been statewide, but corrections officers uh, pepper sprayed, a uh, mercilessly pepper sprayed an inmate in his cell, in his locked cell for no reason. They just felt like doing it. And there was a similar case again, uh, but in the first case, they had used uh, a taser instead of pepper spray. And so that one change made it enough where they, again, were not held responsible. Qualified immunity is what incentivizes bad behavior from police officers and actually punishes good behavior by police officers because police officers who try to you know, rein in the bad officers have no real protections and there's no mechanism they can use to get rid of the bad officers unless they actually like go ahead and murder someone on camera. It literally takes basically a murder conviction for any real change to happen. And, and we see that Derek Chauvin, who who killed George Floyd, uh, he had 17 prior complaints against him, including people dying. And none of those were enough, thanks to, among other things, qualified immunity. None of those things were enough to get him off the police force. So ending qualified immunity not only ends the bad, abusive behavior of, of those officers that are abusing us and are violating our rights and are disproportionately using that harm against marginalized communities. Um, But it also incentivizes good police behavior. Because now, if for no other reason than not wanting to be involved in a lawsuit... Good officers are going to go after the bad officers and say, listen, I'm arresting you for this because you're violating their rights. You're breaking the law. You're you're harming people. And I'm not going to get caught up in your nonsense. So ending qualified immunity will do a tremendous amount towards ending the abuse that we often see from bad police officers. uh, And it will also change the entire culture back towards, uh, you know, within those those departments towards encouraging good police behavior and incentivizing and and, and making it a positive thing for good police behavior, which heals the rift that coupled with ending the drug war and ending all the other wars on victimless commerce that the government is doing will help to change things where the, the people, especially those the most marginalized, people of color, gender and sexual minorities, the poor, the homeless, uh, immigrants, religious and, and, and ethnic minorities and so forth. But really all of us who, when we see police officers, uh, you know, and many of us become worried that we're inadvertently breaking some bylaw or, or we become scared or we become angry or resentful. Instead, we recognize that they're only here to protect our lives and our rights and our property. And then. When that's the reality, now the 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 rift heals between all of us and between the police departments and the public, and and we have a better um we have a better relationship with uh with the police because we have less of a relationship with the police. They're less involved in our lives to begin with. They're only there to help and to and to protect and to and to you know to get those who are who are harming us. Uh and we know that they can't just show up and brutalize us because there are protections in place that will disincenti- disincentivize that kind of behavior. That's why quali- quali- qualified immunity needs to end.
0: Well, that's a really good primer. Damn, I don't think I could have done better myself if I had written it out first. Uh, well, thank you. That's So rolling back qualified immunity would, would essentially restore a sense of like So when people say, hey, we're libertarians, we're all about liberty, we need to protect the liberties of the individuals, I think that a lot of people Mm -hmm. miss the other aspect of this. And the other aspect of this is that anytime you offer or you, you take up a liberty, you have a responsibility that, A, you don't infringe that liberty of others, but also that you use that liberty in such a way that it doesn't harm Right. So exactly. It, it, it creates it advocates for a culture of not just liberty, but a culture of responsibility, of individual responsibility. And that makes me that makes me like I have certain proclivities that don't necessarily fall directly under libertarian libertarian dogma. Uh, I have I have a belief that there's this this like societal trust concept that is not it's not strong in in what i've seen we don't have the same kind of trust in each other that i some some days hope for and it, you know you get that you get that feeling that that like my faith in humanity is restored kind of feeling when you see some stuff online
2: <laughs> right, i right, right.
0: want to exist on a diet of that and that alone and i'd love that someday so maybe maybe that's uh maybe that's not exactly dogmatically in line but i see another kind of conflict of interest and in, i guess Back on my concept before of of false or, or interestingly set up incentivizations, um, mm-hmm. the unions that that uh, that work in the private sector, particularly the one. The question we're asking today is the you know the police unions. Those police unions, uh, they negotiate contracts for wages, for protections, things like that. And 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 this is a public sector, um, a public sector. Public sector, like business, I guess, if you had to think about it that way, and so right, those right, wages, right. They, they come from one of two places, one or two places only. They come from, uh, they come from either a place of tax or a place of like a modern monetary theory uh, deficit spending to you know maintain low rates of crime idea. Because I, I had a planned talk I was going to do in one of my shows uh, about modern monetary theory. And then I realized I sounded mm-hmm. like a hack and an armchair expert the entire time. So I'm probably just gonna spin it off. <laughs> oh my god, it was terrible. But I learned essentially that the idea behind modern monetary theory was that you that that deficit spending, that that a balanced budget may not be the entire end goal here, whereas the end goal might be keeping unemployment low. Or in the case of having unions for private sector places, it might be to Maintain some semblance of, I mean, everything's got a KPI, right? When I'm told at the beginning of my my business year in my office, I'm (laughs) given a list of goals. And those goals, uh, they supposedly translate into some sort of financial incentive if you complete them all. And sometimes they're just broken. Like I don't physically have an action I can take to improve those goals or hurt them. Right. Well, I could probably hurt them. I could hurt my progress fairly easily on some of my goals this year, but I don't see that all of them are ones that I can actively improve. So those unions, when they negotiate those wages for those individuals that are working in the public sector, they are determining without uh, proper representation that uh, that more money should be paid from either a tax base or from this MMT concept of raising a deficit.
2: Just spending endless amounts of money. Right. Right.
0: And I mean, it was I think it was Greenspan of all people that said, you know, America will always cover her debts. We don't need to worry about what we're spending. And I was just flabbergasted because the same it's, it's the same kind of concept you
2: were talking about earlier. Liberty for me, but not for thee. Um, well, and, and, and he, and he's right. And when he's saying that we'll always pay our debts, he just means we'll print out endless reams of money to pay him. So of course we will. And in doing so we'll reduce the value of those debts in the first place, because here's the thing. If, if, and this is a, a, this is sort of a core of modern mo- monetary theory. Let's say that I, I, I asked you, uh, Sean, I, I say, uh, I would like to buy your house and I will give you, a million dollars. And you go, wow, that's amazing. Sure. I mean, I I assume maybe your home's worth more than a million dollars, but I'll assume your home's worth less than a million dollars. So that, that, and that, that was a great deal. Well, I'm in Orange County, so not really,
0: but you know, what are you
2: going to do? Okay. All right. Okay. Then I apologize. I don't even own a home. A (laughs) hundred. Oh, okay. Well, okay. So then I'll, 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 let's pretend you have a home and I say, I'll give you a hundred million dollars. Now we're talking. That's that's amazing. My, my home's not worth a hundred million. I go, but I'm willing to pay that uh, because I always pay my debts back. And then I go back into my car and I print out a $100 million bill, which is worth it, which is actually a legally, you know, a legal tender bill that I just printed and I hand it to you and I go, there you go, there's $100 million. Now, here's what's also happened. I've reduced, I've, that money's worth less then it you know, worth at least that much less than it was when I printed it out. And it's the same thing with these debts. If I could go and run up a trillion dollars or a hundred trillion dollars in debt over the next 10 years, and then I print out a hundred trillion dollars to pay it off, not only have I paid off those debts, but I've also made that debt worth less. So the whole idea behind modern monetary theory is you just keep adding zeros to the debt which makes the value of that debt go down and you just keep spending more. Where they lose us is the fact that it's also reducing the value of that currency at the same time. So you end up in this in this situation where you have to keep adding zeros to a point where you end up like, you know, the most ridiculous scenarios like in Zimbabwe and Venezuela and and Greece during their financial meltdown and the the the, the Weimar Republic in in in, in Germany after World War oh, one, yeah. Where their money's worth nothing. You just you literally are just printing out endless reams of money or, or now digitally water, printing out. Yeah, you can. It, it's not worth. It's not worth the pa- the paper that it or the cloth or whatever it is that it's printed on. It's it's a terrible idea. Now going back to the situation with unions. Unions are a similar situation to for-profit prisons, because you have two entities that are using taxpayer money exclusively. Their only client is the taxpayer, or I guess the government. But they're, the only person paying them is the taxpayer.
0: It's a single-payer police and force, isn't it?
2: It's single-payer policing. It is single-payer uh, uh, prisons. And what they are doing then is using some of that money to actively lobby to get more money. And that is a bad, that is a, a inherently bad system. Now I understand labor protections for people that work for the government, but I will, I will say as someone who advocates for the individual and for the person who is being fleeced by the government, I will always side with individual and, and, and really not just with the taxpayer over those who are trying to secure funding for people who work for the government. Um, because, we see what happens as a result. We see the police unions, the, uh, uh, the corrections unions, the private, the, 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 the for-profit. I don't like calling them private because they're not private. If, if your only client is the government, you aren't private. The, the for-profit prisons who are lobbying for more laws and more restrictions and tougher penalties and tougher, longer sentences and more victimization of people because it makes them more money. Because it keeps them in power, and they can use more money to push or even more regulations and even more laws, and it's this sort of like downward spiral of authoritarianism it's a positive feedback further loop. and further it is well, yeah, it is it's a feedback loop, but it's it's fe- it's a feedback loop with where that is' in, that is uh financed by putting a gun against the head of the American people and saying now pay for it. And even if they're using endless streams of money that they're printing out to pay for it, we're still paying for it. We're just paying for it with interest and with dollars that are being devalued in perpetuity by the printing out of that money. What a, what a, what a terrible and insidious way of 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 taking money from people.
0: I I had an um, but, idea but, actually when I was I, I I toy around with the concept of running for a local local office of some sort. I interviewed somebody who did, mm-hmm. and you know I thought. We live in a world where modern technology exists in just about every sector of industry Mm -hmm. except politics. So, the idea that you can push a button and sound off on an issue, right, should be used to grant people unparalleled and unprecedented access to government. And it's not being done. So, the idea that someone who's meant to represent the people should be able to just put their finger on the pulse of an issue in a second and see what their constituents are thinking. We should be able to do that. And I mean Twitter, while it allows you to communicate with constituents and with people who matter, it doesn't give you a definitive yes no. Something as simple as right. if you're if you're a senator, right, um you have an app that just says yes or no, right? And it shows the current issue being discussed on C-SPAN, for example. Right? And that information, based on demographic where you live in the district, can go straight back to your representation. And, and I mean, there's limitations in that now you're only going to get people who watch C-SPAN, so you're only going to get like three and a half votes. But even then, <laughs> uh, you know, you can you can leverage things like that. You can use. I mean, heaven forbid someone someone talented, popular, a good communicator, someone who's interesting like yourself could use something like instagram and use polls and get data back in quick and reasonable fashion and tie that into demographics it just it just seems to me like we're capable of a lot more than that and we'll be able to carry representation up and when things like bills that uh bills that authorize uh, public sector unions to negotiate salary increases without a vote are up for vote uh we we should be able to you know get get ourselves a nice big hit of representation there that's what I think. And if we're able to do that, that could change the way that we operate. And it, it's very I don't know. I, I I'm a I'm an Andrew Heaton fan, uh, and Andrew Heaton's an Andrew mm-hmm. Yang fan, so I've been kind of indoctrinated into some of that. My my brain has kind of accepted the fact that technology is gonna take on a major role in everything we do. And that begs the question, as things become automated, right, as 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 decisions become more based upon the technology we have access to than our ability to go out on a street corner where there's taco trucks and, and preach, right? Why aren't right. we doing that?
2: Well, we aren't doing that because uh, that doesn't behoove the interest of those who want to keep power and influence centralized, right? Like, And and which, by the way, I, I, th- I tend to, in the same way that I think uh, politics is downstream to culture. I think that. Whoa! Did you seriously
0: just quote Andrew Breitbart on my show? Oh my god!
2: I I on that I will use that Whoa. that there are it, very few. I was
0: going to do that I, earlier. Don't worry about it.
2: No, no, no. It, it, but it is. I mean, it it in the same way that that is representation is downstream of decentralization. As long as you allow so many decisions to be decided by five hundred and forty-five people. Or five hundred and forty-six people. If you include include the president, you're going to keep getting no. It's five forty-five. You're you're going to keep getting what we have right now. You're going to keep getting a situation in which those you know five hundred plus people and the uh, and the the cronies who who surround themselves with them uh, are going to be the ones making all the decisions because they have a vested interest in not allowing the public to have more of an involvement. And so the way that you you solve that. Is bring it back down. Bring decisions back down as much as possible to the, to the local level. You know the Tenth Amendment. The purpose of the Tenth Amendment was to say if it's not written in the Constitution specifically, if it is not explicitly put here, then it should be left to the states, or better yet, to the individual people. Unfortunately, that's been completely ignored, <laughs> and and you know. Uh, 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 thanks to some really bad decisions by the Supreme Court, the the uh, definition of commerce has been so skewed that basically the government can has injected itself into a, every single aspect of our lives. Yeah, the Interstate Commerce um,
0: Clause is what you're talking about.
2: Yeah, and yeah. interestingly enough, one of the first times of them skewing that definition was to restrict immigration because the U.S. was open no to unlimited unregulation uh, unregulated migration for the first hundred years of its existence and a a. a uh a coalition of uh, racists who were scared of the of the uh, Europeans and and uh, Asians that were migrating here, and um, uh, labor protectionists who thought that more immigrants meant you know lower wages and less money. Uh, they kind of formed a coalition to finally pass the Chinese Exclusion Acts and to pass some other uh, restrictions. Now, prior to that, any any attempt to even put a fee on entering the United States was blocked by the Supreme Court as unconstitutional because migration was not to be controlled at the federal level as per the 10th Amendment and the fact that it was never mentioned. The only thing that's ever mentioned is naturalization, the process of becoming a citizen. Everything else in terms of just coming here or leaving here, the government did not feel that it was any of its business. They finally got enough people in the Supreme Court on their side who went, well, you could argue that coming here is an act of commerce. And so, yeah, no, we can control, com- you can control immigration, oh, man. It was with that move. That is when everything started unraveling after the, after the late 1800s. That was when you started seeing Congress able to do everything. Uh, the National Firearms Act, the, uh, uh, you know, all, all of the other things they've done. More recently, Obamacare, that exact same precedent of using that skewed definition of commerce to mean anything anyone does ever (laughs) commerce was supposed to mean a specific act of, of commercial action between someone in one state and someone in another state. And that is it. That's all it was ever supposed to be. And, and it was only regulating, meaning allowing for the smooth, uh, the, the smooth, you know, transition of that to happen. It did not mean that the government is supposed to be involved in every aspect of our lives. It started with migration, but it's continued on with every other every other single thing. Um, but going back to your original question, if we go to the spirit of the Tenth Amendment, and really the, the exact wording of the Tenth Amendment, which is that if it isn't laid out specifically in the Constitution, the federal government shouldn't even be involved remotely in it. Put it back to the state level. Better yet, put it back to the local level. Better yet entirely, take it out of the hands of centralized authorities and allow people in the free market to come up with the best solutions and 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 also get the government out so that they're not making things worse and, and providing more problems to have to find solutions to. That will also lead to better representation. You have far better representation in telling Amazon or Walmart, or, 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 or better yet, even just some small business up the road, how you would like them to do things. Or if you find that no one in the market is providing that solution, you can step up and do it yourself or encourage others to do so. You have far more representation there than you will ever, ever have at City Hall, or at the state government, or definitely at the federal government. I
0: actually, as a, as a, like a bit of a story to that, a, um, you say you have better representation in small businesses local to your, to your home. It's Mm -hmm. that's, that's inequivocably like that is absolute truth. I, at least in my Mm -hmm. experience, I've, uh, I've been at local shops where, you know, if they don't have what I'm looking for and I'm a consistent customer, right. They get to weigh out whether it's worth their time to carry the products that I'm interested in. So I've asked, Hey, you guys don't have item X, Y, Z. It's a consumable. I need, you know, a couple of them a week kind of thing. And uh, and they say, you know what? Uh, you're not the first person who's asked this. Let me see if I can get these in. And that way we can have your business here instead of you driving across yeah. town to Big Box Mart. Right. And, and yep. they usually, yep. you know, they don't always get the best price, but that's that's voting with your pocketbook, man. Like if if, if you're voting with your pocketbook for price, then Walmart wins. If you're voting with your pocketbook for for uh, the ability to live locally and and, and those kinds of things. That's that's going to be your choice, and and these guys competing at these at at the Walmart level, I mean, it is hard to compete, you know, with you know a five dollar car. I mean, it's just ridiculous. But what are you going to do? You know, that's that's the way.
2: But but here, I I I have an answer to that. Here's what you do: you remove the regulatory burdens that have created that gap between small businesses and big businesses. So, uh, Sean, yes, there is some economy of scale that comes with being a big business, but there's also massive overhead. That comes with being a big business. And so what what big business has determined, what the Walmarts and the Amazons and the Targets and everyone else have determined is that the GMs and everything else, once you reach a certain point, you can't get any bigger just by providing value to the market because you can't because smaller competitors are going to be able to be more virile and more easy to quick to respond to what they're seeing happening at the market level. Go ahead.
0: You're talking about the concept of market disruption?
2: yeah market disruption and and creative destruction you can only get so big and then you're either going to fall or 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 you'll you know just kind of find an equilibrium or or you know you'll slowly decline as others come ahead or whatever and it doesn't mean you fail it just means you reached your 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 top point and you know you you may be able to stay there for a while but there's always going to be smaller hungrier competitors unless I just go to government and say, hey, pass all these regulatory burdens and make sure that I never have a real competitor ever come up and try to, you know, try to compete with me ever again. And that's why you see Amazon and Walmart pushing for minimum wage increases. And that's why you see uh, GM and GE and all these other companies pushing for so-called safety regulation increases. It's because they know they can afford it. Will it hurt their bottom line? Mm, Kind of, but it actually helps their bottom line. Because they know that their competitors can't compete. They can't afford it. And if, you, and if it reaches a point where they can't even afford to do it here, they just leave. They spend the billions of dollars to refit their their base of operations in China and Vietnam and Japan and South Korea and wherever else they can go. And more and more, they're not doing Japan and South Korea. They're going to dictatorial governments and setting up slave labor sweatshops because they can afford to do it and they know that their competitors can't. So not only have they now crushed their smaller competitors, but they've also created uh, uh, political problems with people actually being oppressed so that they can sell their shoes, they can can produce their shoes for less and sell them for more because they got rid of their competitors. They've created an environmental problem because they exponentially increased the carbon footprint of their products by having them made on the other side of the planet and shipped over here instead of being made you know, up the road from where I live, or, you know, uh, you know, on another part of the country and shipped here. They have created a, 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 a labor problem here with workers who, you know, increasingly, and this is something Andrew Yang talked about between this and automation, you know, a situation where an increasing number of laborers have no real ability to add to the market. So they simply can't afford it. They have to live on on government assistance. All of this has come on the backs of cronies of big businesses, using the force of the state to create regulatory burdens that entrench and enmesh themselves at the expense of everybody else. And it has harmed us politically, it has harmed us financially, it has harmed us in our quality of life, and it has harmed us environmentally. Yep. And here is the, here is, first of all, let's go to why we're dealing with the pandemic and the lockdowns in the first place. And then we can show how, then we can get into how the cronies have made sure that they benefit from it when we when the in the first uh, opening weeks of 2020 the public knew that there was this by, by the middle of January we knew and and probably at least a couple of weeks before that the federal government knew that there was this new virus in China that was very similar to SARS and that it could possibly spread probably spread asymptomatically which is a total game changer for a virus because if you can't simply you know uh if 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 it can only be spread by people with symptoms, then you just contain, contain people that have symptoms, and that, that greatly reduces its ability to, to spread and become an outbreak. But if you and I walking around could have it and not even know it, or just you know, maybe feel like we, you know, our sinuses are bothering us, or it's you know, just a cold or whatever, and, and, and we're, meanwhile we're spreading it, now that can spread exponentially. That can spread way more easily. And we knew that as recently as the middle of January. And so there were people that was in the news and people were going to their doctors and saying, uh, yeah, you know, doctor, I was, I was in Wuhan, China, or I was in Hubei province in China and I'm not feeling the best. And I was in that area. And this, my symptoms sound pretty similar to what they're, what they're talking about uh, on, on the news about the, this, you know, coronavirus that I might have. uh, And I just want to see if I have it, what they didn't know is that the CDC has regulations in place that say if you want to test for a new virus, you have to go through a Byzantine months-long permitting process to be allowed to do so. Now, thankfully, some doctors like Dr. Helen Chu at the University of Washington in Seattle and, and others across the country, they ignored that law. They ignored that regulation. They put their Hippocratic Oath ahead of their ahead of what the magic sheet of paper said that they should be doing. And they said, no, I'm not going to allow. If this person has uh, COVID-19, uh, I'm going to find out and we're going to you know, treat them and contain them. And so <clears throat> they created these test kits, which apparently if you know how to make one of these test kits, they're easy to make. I, I won't even pretend to know how to make one, but um, but they, they made these kits uh, and then they tested them and some of them came back positive. Again, they did this illegally. Then they went to the federal government and said, "Hey, listen. Uh, turns out that this uh, virus is already here. We need to do something. Do you know what the initial response from the CDC was? Straight to they jail. Said,
0: Straight to jail.
2: No, 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 no. They didn't. They didn't put anyone into jail. Actually, they. That, I. I, they, I guess that was probably the the uh, implicit, um, Im- Im- implicit threat there. But actually, their first response was to tell them destroy those kits and tell no one, including the people who tested positive, do not treat them. Pretend this didn't." happened. that's what they exactly. told doctors about the most the most prolific pandemic that we have experienced in our time they told them to ignore and it they because china they thought it was a good idea
0: go they ahead They complaining that uh, that china was doing the same thing suppressing information things like that those complaints when they not were doing not it. that sounds like we're doing the same thing here
2: They did the exact same thing here. Now, in China, you're right. They sent them straight to jail. (laughs) They called them propagandists and and sent them to jail. Here, they were a little more gentle. They just told them to to, uh, suppress the results. Now, thankfully, those doctors put their Hippocratic oath above the law again, and in an amazing act of civil disobedience, they released those uh, results to the public and said, it's here. And that civil disobedience put pressure on the CDC to change it so that now you still do have to apply to, for approval, but you get provisional approval and you can start testing. That's why we even started testing. But that took eight weeks, six to eight weeks. We were so behind the eight ball that now it spread to the level that it's spread now. And so in a in a in a act of overcorrection, the state governments went out and said, "Okay, no one go outside. Uh, everyone just stay inside. We don't even know what we're dealing with. So just stay inside. If you go out, wear a mask and, and 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 stay as far away as you can from people." But then they also just started shutting businesses down and telling them they weren't essential. Now guess which ones were were guess which ones were determined essential? All the biggest ones. Be sure to buy from uh, Amazon. Be sure to buy from Walmart. Be sure to buy from Target. Be sure to buy from, you know, all these big companies. But don't go to the furniture store. That's dangerous. Go into a large building filled with hundreds or thousands of people at a time. Go to Walmart or Costco. That'll be fine. But don't go to the furniture store where there's maybe four other people in there. That's dangerous. Don't get your hair cut. That's dangerous. Don't go to the park or the beach. That's dangerous. Go to Walmart and Costco and Target and, 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 you know, uh, uh you know buy on amazon go go you know support your local big business it is not a an accident that those who were the most well positioned didn't suffer from this and and the airlines and the ones that 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 were going to necessarily suffer because they're certainly not going to tell people to travel unnecessarily they just got trillions in bailouts they printed out 6 trillion federal reserve notes to prop up wall street big businesses and big banks and they gave the rest of us 1200 bucks and said, "Yeah, make this work for forever because we're not going to tell you when you're essential. We're not we don't even know when we're going to tell you you're essential again."
0: 6 trillion just to give the folks at home an idea of what 6 trillion dollars is. What's uh can can you give us some sort of metric?
2: They could have given every single American, not every taxpayer, not every household, every American including children, something like $17,000 each. Imagine if they had passed a bill that gave the average American household something like 50 grand. How much better of a position would we be in right now? I mean, that would still be terrible economics because, again, they're printing out money and and reducing the overall value and so forth. But imagine how much better it would be if instead of giving that four, four and a half trillion of it to the cronies, and, and, and Wall Street and big banks and big business, if instead they had just handed it per person to the American people, how much better of an economic uh, s- uh, situation would we be in right now? Right.
0: It's, I mean, 17 G's. I mean, you could, hand, you could hand every household in America that doesn't have a car a Kia Soul for that price. We're not sponsored by Kia. We're not sponsored.
2: By <laughs> you could you could get, I mean, a 50 grand, you could get every, get every, every person in the country a, a Hyundai Genesis. I mean, I, that's like 50 grand is some serious walking around money. Okay. And and if you told now, if we had told everyone, hey, stay home, here's 50K per household on average, here's 17 grand a person, we'd have been like, all right, let's stay home. What's what? Let's go. I mean, Amazon would have really done well then. But that's um, like giving
0: everybody but, in America who has a bachelor's degree all the money they need to acquire a master's. Yeah, a very reputable yes. school. Just to give an idea. Yeah, and and that's that's crazy. And the civil disobedience you mentioned. I'm sorry to hustle along, but I, I have a couple of things I want to do for you here. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So speaking of civil disobedience, um, I've seen that both you and uh, and Dr. Jorgensen have been to many rallies celebrating the life and lamenting the death of George Floyd and so many others like him, and you posted mm-hmm. on social media what you've heard and put an extreme emphasis. On listening. How has this driven you yep. forward in your campaign?
2: My campaign has been a listen first campaign um, because I know what I believe and I know what the Libertarian Party and what the Libertarian ethos and philosophy and praxis prescribes for society, but I also need to be listening to people because the average person is not like the average libertarian. We tend to systemize things. The average person is existing in the moment of uh, you know applying their intuition and and yes, and also their feelings and their inter- intellect, but they're looking at things as, here's what I need to deal with now. How do I do that? And so, in listening to people, a I'm getting feedback and i'm I'm, I'm hearing what their actual solutions are their their actual issues and problems are b I am demonstrating that I actually care and that I actually uh, don't just want to force my positions on others, but I actually want to hear what they have to say so I can make recommendations based on that and see I am opening them up to an entirely different world of how politics can be done, of how interactions between people can be done. Where first you, the same way though it would happen in a free market, first you listen to the, for lack of a better word, the consumer. You listen to the person who is saying, I have a problem. Okay, what's your problem? And you listen to that problem. And then based on what they say, you apply, you demonstrate that you heard them and that you empathize with them. And then you You provide your solution. And so I have very much when I have gone to the uh, Black Lives Matter protests, when I've gone to college campuses, when I've done door knocking tours in marginalized communities and housing projects, when I have gone to conventions, when I've gone to Libertarian Party, state and local conventions, when I have done countless Zoom meetings with all sorts of different groups, everything from libertarian groups to progressive groups, conservative groups, gun rights groups, gay pride groups, um, LGBT groups, uh, uh, college uh, courses and college programs online, uh, where, they, where they meet and they have me talk with them and listen to them. I always start by asking them uh, what it is they think, what they have to say, what their feelings are about the thing. And then based on that, I'm able to then prescribe our solutions. I'm able to talk to them about from their precepts. You have to go where people are, not just in their spaces, but from their precepts. Meet them where they are and then from their precepts and their concerns, demonstrate and prescribe your solutions. And so with the Black Lives Matter protests, I don't want to go there and you know, if I'm invited to go and give a speech, I certainly will. But I don't want to go there and say, hey, everyone, I'm running for vice president. Let me tell you what I think. So in that moment, I want to hear what they have to say. I want to ask them questions about why they are there. And what I have overwhelmingly heard from Black Lives Matter protesters is completely different from the caricature that, you know, right wing media has. That's given what to I them. thought. They're not there to disrupt they're not there to say we don't care about anyone but black people in fact, just the opposite. They are not there to say uh you know we want to destroy everything and you know death to whitey or whatever these terrible characters. It's just the opposite. I heard all lives matter at least five or six times by the speakers at the Black Lives Matter protests. And, and and within the context of them saying when I say black lives matter I mean that I want all lives to matter. I don't want all lives matters to be something that's only said anytime someone says that black lives matters. I want black lives Uh, I want all lives matter to be something that's true because we're getting equal and fair representation under the law and we aren't having laws disproportionately enforced against us in our communities. And what I heard was a distinctly libertarian thing, because what they were proposing, I didn't hear a single person say we need to increase welfare. There wasn't a single person who said that. They talked about reducing the police state, demilitarizing the police state, getting rid of bad laws that put people in jail for no good reason. Uh, changing the way that police interact with the public. These are all things that libertarians have been calling for for decades. And this is our moment. This is our time. And I heard similar things from the lockdown protesters. So you have people across the political spectrum who are recognizing that this police state, that this government, that this form of system that the Republicans and the Democrats have imposed upon us and have had exclusive control over for the last 160 years has created a reality where they can snap their fingers and say, do whatever we say. And in real time, it happens. And and with the always with the implicit threat there that we will come, we will take you, and we will put you in a cage. We will put you in a cinder block cage if you do not listen to us. And what I heard was people who said, we want an end to that. And there is only one organization and only one party who is actively pushing for an end to that. And that's us.
0: You answered an awful lot of the other questions I was going to ask with what I consider <laughs> probably one of the most nuanced responses to this issue that I have ever heard, and that means that means a lot to me, and I think it'll mean a lot to my listeners, and that's my hope. And I mean, as always, listeners, if 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 it doesn't mean a lot to you, uh, say something, right? But this is this is one of the more important things I've heard in my lifetime, and I think we need to pay attention to that very closely, as. You, in particular, and and uh, well, you and Dr. Jorgensen in particular,
2: yeah. Joe, Joe, and I as well, yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: Submit your your bid to become the uh, the sole seat behind the Resolute Desk at the Waffle House, uh, White House, and uh, <laughs> I think that this special blend partnership between the two of you is one of the best bets that we've had. In you know, I'm, I'm I haven't been around that long, but in the time that I've been alive, and so. Uh, I believe the future seems just a little bit more golden with a great VP candidate and a team armed to the teeth with powerful and effective policy that wishes to turn the tide against Habesian Leviathan of government to one of individual rights, liberty, and equity. Everyone deserves a seat at the table, and I think you are just the person to do it. My best wishes to you and your campaign, Mr. Cohen. I thank you greatly for your time this afternoon.
2: Thank you very much Sean and I appreciate your 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 uh, your your well wishing there and and your your kind words. Uh, and folks, if you would like to, if you would like to find out more about our campaign and if you'd like to join us, uh, I invite you to go to J O J 2020.com. That's J O J 2020.com. Uh, I invite you to fill out our volunteer form so that you can join the team. Uh, if you are able, I ask for you to to give whatever contribution you have, you can press the donate button and, and give whatever you can. I ask you to join us on social media. You can find me at real spike Cohen on Twitter, uh, and, uh, just if you look up Spike Cohen on Facebook, you'll find me there. Or the Facebook, the address is facebook.com slash literally Spike Cohen uh, and I invite you to find... Joe Jorgensen is on all social media. She's on Twitter. She's on Facebook. She's on Instagram. She's on YouTube. Uh, I invite you to find us on all of those platforms and follow us. Share whatever content we put out that that really speaks to you. Uh, I invite you to join the Libertarian Party, both at the national and the state and local level, and uh, and get involved in our campaign. Uh, I invite you to talk to your friends and your loved ones and your neighbors about libertarianism and why you support our ticket and our solutions and and, and the ideas of libertarianism. I invite you to tell people that you know we all own ourselves, our lives, our bodies, our labor and our property and that we, the Libertarian Party and we Joe Jorgensen and Spike Cohen for president and vice president uh, will fight against anyone who tries to violate that. Uh, I invite you to imagine a world in which we are freer and happier and safer, and healthier in which we are creating a future for our children and grandchildren that is greater than one that we could possibly imagine in this moment. That is what Joe Jorgensen and I are fighting for every day. And with your support and with your vote in November, that is exactly what we will do in the White House. Thank you.
0: that's our show. This episode was brought to you by Bullshito's No Real Libertarian podcast. Please check him out on Spotify and Anchor.fm. Feel free to join us on our Discord. The link is in the description. If you like this show, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to see this show continue and improve, please consider a very kind donation to www.paypal.me forward slash Boston Makes the News. The link is also in the description. Leave your Discord handle in the memo section of the donation and I'll see to it that you get special content via our Discord server. Come listen to us next week when we speak with AZ Boogalorian about entrepreneurship and marketing in a changing landscape. I'm Boston and this has been Boston Makes the News.